Okay, if you've got a Bible, can you please turn to Exodus chapter 3? Exodus chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he, and he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am who I am. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You probably know where this passage comes from. Um, you probably learnt it in Sunday school if you were good and went to church, or you probably learnt it in school. It's part of a much larger passage where Moses uh, meets God in the burning bush. And how, from that encounter with God, how he was instructed to go back to Egypt so that he could deliver uh, his people from the hands of Pharaoh. So you're probably saying to me, Nigel, that's a huge passage uh, that you could have spoken on. I know that's the problem. The problem that I had is that I had the whole burning bush story, but actually I was drawn to this bit. So um, you just have to cope with me, I think. It was just this bit that struck me. And the reason that I, did, that I got stuck in this part was that um, I was just looking at you know, what do you preach and how do you preach and what's the purpose of it? And I, I got stuck on that, that verse. This is my name forever and thus I'm to be remembered throughout generations. I felt that that is what God wanted me to stir you with or to stir you up about or to wind you up or to unsettle you. I don't know, but that is what I, I actually um, felt. And I was just struck by that, that verse, really in the context of Psalm 9, verse 10. It said, the people who know God's name will trust him. If you know God's name, then all that, can, all that you are as a Christian or all that is not as a Christian actually can lead you to trust him. And I just I was stuck, I thought, no, come on. If I remember his name throughout all generations then I'm going to be able to trust him. And it seemed to me, therefore, if I could concentrate on the name of the Lord, it would strengthen me, strengthen you, would give us confidence for growing the church, for planting other churches, which is our, our sort of desire. And if we could get to know God's name better, then actually what I, we could do is go from this place changed. Go from this place, change. So that's my aim. My aim is to try and see whether we can get through that. So what does a name signify? The reason for knowing the name of God is that I believe it will help you and I to trust him. 
who will help you and I to trust him with our life right now and with our future, which every one of us can guarantee is unknown. You may have plans, but actually you don't know what today or tomorrow will bring. So knowing how we can trust him will help us with our future. And in scripture, a person's name often signifies their character, their ability, or their mission, that what God has called them to, especially when the name is given to God. So we can get to know what God's like by looking at his name. So Adam names his wife Eve because that name means she will be the mother of all the living. And God changes Abram's name to Abraham to show to everybody around him that God would make him the father of many nations. And God changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And he changed Jacob's name to Israel. And when it came to the Son of God who came into the world, he left his name to no chance whatsoever. Because he said this, he said, You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So we know what Jesus is about. We know what it means to encounter him. It means that if I encounter Jesus, he will save me from my sins. Now I have checked this out. And when I'm allowed to use this as an illustration, well, 50% of it I am. Apparently, I have two daughters. Apparently. <clears throat> I know that every now and again because I have to put my hand in my pocket. Isn't that true, dads? Yes, you do. And what I've, uh, I've, we, when they were, before they were born, we uh, named them Rachel and Amy. And the reason that we did that was that we actually did some investigation into their names. And apparently, uh, Rachel means little lamb. Just, if she doesn't behave like it, just remind her of it, okay? It means little lamb. Amy means blessed. Now, it's true, we've, we've noticed this, that the difference between Amy and Rachel is that if Rachel falls over, she breaks a foot. If Amy falls over, she finds five quid. So, so Rachel's been prophesied, it's still to come, but there you go. But that's the way that it sort of is. But what I didn't do, and what we didn't do, when we were choosing their names, we didn't put all the names that we could possibly think of in a hat, and suddenly, on the day that Rachel was born, put our hand in and draw it out. We didn't do that. They actually were given a lot of thought. They may not think that now, uh, but they were given a lot of thought. And actually, some names were rejected. Because for us, the naming of our daughters was very important. And Andy and Angie and uh, uh, Jonathan and Hannah have both either decided on a name for their little one or are in the process of doing it. And we will know what that name will be in just a few, uh, a few weeks' time. But one thing that you can guarantee is that they will not have gone through that process lightly. It is a vitally important thing to consider the name of a person. But when God names people, 
it is different. And the reason is this. I don't know whether you've noticed, there is a big difference between me and God. You're allowed to smile at this point. There just is. Me and God are very different. And when I name somebody, actually, I don't have the power and authority to make Rachel little lamb. Little lion, maybe we should have changed it. <laughs> little lamb, don't know. But I don't have the power and authority to make my daughters fit their name. I gave them names and pray that they would be little lamb and blessed. But I do not have the power to make them become that people. But God has the right and the power to cause anyone he names to become what that name implies. That's the difference. The names that he gives people are their destiny. They are their character. They are their very being. And they don't actually just adopt that name. They become that person. And when he names himself, you can be sure that it's packed with who he is and what he is and what he intends to do. And God does not choose for himself a name that is random so that we can just call upon a name. He names himself with a direct purpose. He doesn't sort of name himself after a great uncle because it was in the name of the family. Or he doesn't think we should never call somebody Nigel because that's embarrassing for the next generation. He doesn't do that at all. Also that somebody might develop a nickname from them. He chooses the name for people and therefore himself so that people might be able to so that he might be able to reveal to you and I what he is like. And so that through a discovery of his name, we might deepen our relationship with him. That we might wonder at the God in whom we serve and that we might be stirred to follow him more than we are at this point. So the most important name for God in the Old Testament is the name that the English versions never get translated So actually, guys, because we happen to live in Great Britain or America or any of the English-speaking world, believe it or not, you come to this deficient. It'd be interesting to ask Kimmy um, of of what the Nigerian Bible says or that sort of stuff, but in the English version and how it is translated, we change the real name of God. Now, you'll find this out because when you see the word Lord in your Bible, it is usually written in capital letters. L-O-R-D in capitals. And there is actually a name behind that. You're just checking it now, aren't you? Ooh, no, no. Blimey, I've got an English one. Oh, yes, that's wrong. Okay. So we're there. There is a name behind it. And the name behind that has actually only four letters itself. And is spelt Y-H-W-H. We say Yahweh, but actually we just say that. It's, it's just put together with a few vowels. We don't actually know what it sounds like. The Jews 
came to regard this word with such reverence that they would never take it on their lips. And they inadvertently changed the name so that they wouldn't take the name of of God in vain. So whenever they came to read the name Yahweh, they would pronounce the word Adonai, which means Lord. Now, the English version have actually changed that pattern. They translate the, the, they translate the proper name Yahweh with Lord in capitals. And actually, guys, it is unsatisfactory. It's actually wrong. Because the English word Lord does not communicate God's proper name. It doesn't. When you read Lord, you are reading Lord, Lord of a manor, that sort of thing. And you read Lord of Lords, King of Kings. That's what, you, that's what you're reading. It isn't his proper name. It isn't like saying, well, David is not David, or Rupert's not Rupert, or Andrew is not Andrew. Um, that's effectively what we are saying. No, Rupert is Rupert. Rupert is Rupert. David is David. Andrew, you are Andrew. You, but God is Yahweh, is Yahweh. It occurs actually 6,828 times in the Old Testament. That's impressive, isn't it? Well, I was impressed. That's more than three times more than the simple word for God, Elohim, 2,600, or a simpler word for God, L238. What it shows is this is that God is actually trying not to be known as God. But he wants you and I to know a specific name, a specific person that, charac- that, that has a specific character and therefore a specific mission. He's wanted you and I to encounter Yahweh. And we have cut it out of our Bibles. So... What is the meaning of Yahweh uh, from Exodus chapter 3? The most important text in the Bible is this one, to understand it. Actually, there is no greater one in regard to the contextual thing than this one, which, is, uh, which we've read together. I want you to note three things, uh, or three answers to the question. What shall I tell them your name is? Who shall I tell them sent me to Pharaoh? First is this, verse 14. God says, I am who I am. Second, verse 14. God says, I am sent me to you. Third, verse 15. He says, Yahweh, if you like, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Now, God's purpose in meeting with Moses is to reveal the meaning and the personal name of Yahweh so that, or so that you and I might know God and that he and might know God. Un- it is important that we grasp this because when we grasp this, we will know to whom we serve. If we just worship God, it's small God. But if we follow Yahweh, 
we know what it is to be in the presence of God. But can you imagine? That's what God was saying to Moses. Because Moses was saying, what is going to fill me with confidence to stand before what was the greatest ruler on the face of this earth at this time? And God just said to him, I am that I am. And and Moses looked at him and thought, yeah, that'll do. (laughs) That will do. And do you know, when you can understand I am that I am, whatever obstacle will stand in front of you, you will be able to go, yeah, that'll do. And it's for us to discover who is with us. So let's try and take it in. The implications of I am who I am. The first one, God exists. He just says this, I am. I am. That's simple enough. Well, as Francis Schaeffer said, I had the, uh, I had the privilege of going as a 14-year-old uh, to Labrie. Couldn't understand a word of what Francis Schaeffer was on about, but got this. He used to never say that God exists. He used to say, God is there. He used to say that. He used to sit in this room, this lecture theatre, and he used to say, God is here. God is there. It may seem so obvious and basic that we, perhaps you'd think, Nigel, why are you mentioning that God exists? Well, it may be obvious and basic, but the truth is this, that most people live as if it was not true. That actually, the fact that God exists seems to make no impression on people's lives whatsoever. I don't know whether you've noticed that this week, the Queen has moved from Windsor Castle, from Buckingham Palace to Windsor Castle, and you can go in uh, and have a look in Buckingham Palace. And one of the things that you can go and see this time that you couldn't see last time is the throne room. And I just want you to imagine that the Queen invited you before she went to Windsor Castle, and she said, would you like to bring you and your mates round to Buck House for tea and <clears throat> you can do that because I'm off to Windsor for a few days for the summer holidays. And you say, yeah, that'd be great. And so you are invited into the throne room. The throne room is red. It's got a magnificent chandelier on it, um, all that sort of stuff, big thick carpets. And there are two little seats at the end, of which Prince Charles sits on one and the Queen sits on the other. So I'm good at describing, but you'll have to go and look. It's only because I, I can only describe it because I saw it on the news. My memory will be shot by tomorrow and I won't be able to remember what it looked like. But anyway, as you enter, there's the Queen and Prince Philip sitting on the throne. And you walk in with your mates. And without a glance or a greeting, you just walk past her. She's invited you not only for the afternoon, but for the evening as well. And in the evening, there's a band that's playing in the corner, little sort of nice, you know, things with violins and all that sort of stuff that the Queen likes. And you've got all the dinner that they bring out on nice posh posh stuff and china and all sort of things like that. And she still sits on the throne. But... For the whole evening, you neither look at her nor speak to her or even thank her for inviting you or even ask her why she invited you, which probably the question I have, why did they go and not me? And later, you go outside and the sun reporter for royal things is at the door. And the son wants to know whether they can ask you some questions um, so that they can put it in their paper in the next day. 
So the Sun reporter says to you, do you believe in the existence of the Queen? And you say, yeah, of course I do. And they say, yeah, I, I agree in her existence. Yeah, uh, I agree that this is her palace. And actually, her cakes were great. But you acted as if you do not believe that she existed. You acted as if her gifts and not her were the centre of your attention. That's what you did. You enjoyed the palace, you enjoyed the cakes, but you actually ignored the queen. This is not my illustration coming up. This is one that I've nicked, so please just uh, bear with me. The vast majority of people who actually believe in God treat him in this way. This is the illustration. Somebody once said, he's like hydrogen. You learned about hydrogen once at school. And when you learned about it at school, you were startled that this makes a difference to how you breathe. That without it, you would die. Oxygen. Sorry. Sorry, God for the sorry. But actually this morning, before you lose the track, before this, none of you thanked God this morning that you were still breathing. Well, maybe one did, Phil Harmon, because he's just looking at me. But, if it, but that was by luck, more luck than judgment, I guess. You were taught about oxygen. You know that it exists. But actually, you don't take much about the fact that you're breathing right now. Put yourself forward a few years when every human being will give an account and stand before God and God will say to millions of people, now it is my understanding that you said often in your life that you believed in God and yet they say, yes. You affirmed my existence, is that right? Yes. You believed in me, yes. But what did you do for me? Well... What did you ask of me? Why did you not follow me? Why did you treat me as if I was oxygen? What is the world going to answer? What are thousands of so-called Christians going to ask her when actually their faith in God is no different than the oxygen that we are now breathing? I was struck by this. I, don't, I find the judgment day, and I don't think I've ever preached on the judgment day. It's strange, isn't it? But I was just struck about the judgment day. When I came to this conclusion, I was looking at this, I came to this conclusion. Actually, the judgment day for God is going to be fairly easy in the sense that it is going to be easy for God to condemn the world on judgment day. It's not going to be that complex because... The defendants will be utterly speechless because of the inconsistency of the lives that they say. If you, if you do this in terms of a court and in terms of a barrister, I want you to imagine that the barrister has got the file on humanity and stands before the judge and he opens it and it says, the defendant affirmed that God existed, but the personal life was or that, as if it made no difference whatsoever. And the judge will say, Condemned. And contained 
in the name Yahweh. And the most important truth about God is he exists. And for him to make a difference in your life, you and I need to live as if he exists. Secondly, no reality exists behind God. This is so complex, but please bear with me. Because I tried to do this as simply as I could. But it is just complex, but it's balmy as well. So it is this. The second implication in the name, I am who I am, is that God's personality and power are owing solely to himself and to no other. What? What does that mean? Go back before the earth or the solar system or galaxies or universe or stardewaries, whatever you'd like to call it. Moon, sun, all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> and then if you can, go a little bit further. Go, just go further than, than that. And ask yourself this question. Well, where did God come from? How did he get the way that he is? If you ask me how I got the way that I was, I would blame my dad and my mum. And then I would blame Clothier Street School, Pool Hay School, Rubrio in Apprenticeship and the Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club for forming me as I am and all that sort of stuff. And then you'd ask me, but, you know, what about all your oddities? Yeah, well, some of them are down to me, but some of them are down actually to fears and all sorts of things that I've come across through life. I am formed by life's experiences, good or bad. My mum and dad started it. That's how I got to be the way that I am. But when you ask God how he got to be the way that he, um, he is, he answers, I am who I am. In other words, nobody gave him genes. In other words, no power brought him into existence or nothing shaped his personality. There were no little hiccups along the way that said, oh, flipping heck, I won't create the heaven and the earth like that then because, you know, if I do that, this will go wrong, which is just like you. It's why you don't shop in Tesco's, but actually go to Asda or something like that. You have made decisions based on things that have occurred, but they have not happened. He has never shopped in Tesco's. He had no beginning. There wasn't a reality outside of him that affected him. There wasn't a force or of influence that, that checked his character. There wasn't something that was powerful that was given to him so that he could lose it. God is and always will be absolute. So asking the question, why is God the way he is, is like asking me this question. This is where I have to use my wife now. And I couldn't think of another one. Please forgive me for this, Callie. It's, this is what I, it just struck me. I'm trying to answer this simply because, because I believe it's the wrong question that we're asking. Why is God the way he is? It's like asking me, Nigel, when are you going to stop beating Callie? It actually is unanswerable because it assumes that something exists. And it assumes that I am beating Callie. But because I am, I am not... I can't stop. And there's nothing behind or outside of God that can answer the question, why is God the way he is? Because the way he is, is because he is whom he is. Full stop. It is mind-blowing. 
But sometimes, you know, that is the power that we can... That's why that God, that Moses could say, okay, I'll go to Pharaoh. Why? Because I've got this behind me. I've got this behind me. I've got somebody that has existed, that is completely unique, and he looks at Pharaoh and he says, bring him on. Bring him on. Thirdly, God does not change. Malachi 3 verse 6 says this, I, Yahweh, or Lord in your version, cross it out, put Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And within the name Yahweh is an affirmation. I am who I am, which means I don't change. I am unruffled. But if God is not determined by a force outside of himself, then he's not subject to the changes that we are. I'm very subject to changes. I don't know whether you're like me, but I'm very subject to the weather. So, for some reason, I, if it's, if, I don't know whether you wake up in the morning and, and you feel the pressure of warmth and sunlight through your curtains or whatever you've got. And suddenly, the world... Well, for me, the world seems a better place. I'm ready to get up and go... And when I hear that, that noise called rain, I'm like, the, the last thing that I want to do is face... I just want to get the duvet and go like... I, I am subject to Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. <laughs> last year... I was the happiest guy on the face of this earth because we won the championship. But this year, on Sky Sports, which every now and again I glance on rare occasions, like every other man, just occasionally just to look, it it does this thing where it says to you, these are the next five games. And I look at those, and I look at the millions spent to Manchester City and realise that we're playing them. And I look at it, and I sit there, and in the end, I can't look at it any longer for fear of failure, and I switch it off. Because I am subject, and so are you, to changes external. And we change our mind, don't we, because of unforeseen circumstances, problems. But God foresees all circumstances and therefore has no weaknesses. It's extraordinary. Everything happens under his creation and he does not change. You think you have a problem and you and I change massively. He has all your problems worldwide, global and he doesn't change. That is remarkable. Yes. It is absolutely remarkable. I can't even get out of bed and it does not affect him. So, nothing in creation takes him off guard, backs him into a corner. Therefore, he cannot act out, out of character. He can't compromise integrity. He is who he is. James says this. With him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His absolute name is the the solid foundation that I know that he will be faithful to him. So Moses goes and stands before Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, hear this. And Pharaoh goes, nah. 
So Moses walks off and he said, I know, God is faithful, cannot change. Let's go back, lads. Woof! And he's back. Most of us would have not gone to the second stage. Are we going to do that coming up? But we wouldn't. But he looks at this, he says, no, God is faithful. Bring him on again. And if he refuses again, I come again. And if he refuses again, I come again. And if he sends an army again, we do this, guys. What? Because I am Moses? No, because God is faithful. That's it. That's what stirs him on. Well, I'm just this big guy named Moses. Got airy chest and all that sort of stuff. Stand before Pharaoh. I know that. No, rubbish. God is faithful. He can take the smallest thing, the most insignificant thing, fill them with the faithfulness of God, and they can become mighty for the name of the Lord. Don't get excited, Nigel. Just plead on. Fourthly, God is an exhaustible source of energy. The fourth implication. I am who I am. Which means I can do anything. I've spelt it wrong. It's right in my notes. Can I just, can I just, can you just check that? Yes. It's right, okay. It's just technology. If God is the ever, don't look at that, look at me. No, don't look at me, that's worse. Look at that. Just laugh. There you go. God does not change, but I do. That was point three. Point four, fourth implication. Chapter Isaiah 40. Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. If God is the everlasting, absolute God, then he's the creator of the heavens and the earth and the universe. And if he's creator of everything... Is energy, all motion, all if you like combustion, all if you like, what do they call it, fusion and fission, whatever you'd like to call it, whatever term you would like to use, all that the scientists invent, in the end, originate from him. Everything comes from him. Some guy might think they invented it, but now everything comes from him. Somehow, the energy in the universe came from somewhere, and it came from him. And he's sustained by his powerful word. I find it difficult to sustain 50 people. And God is sustaining our whole universe in order. He has an inexhaustible reservoir of power in himself that is yet to be even measured in a small scale. In a small scale. Do you know, I don't know whether you ever knew this, but my father told me this, that when they did the testing for the nuclear bomb, the Christians had prayer meetings because they thought that the end of the world had begun. You think, no, (laughs) it is a drop in the bucket, isn't it? He is ultimately all energy and all all power. Everything. And when we... Everything in the universe sort of plugs into him. He's like that thing that Phil produces. What is it with musicians and cables? But actually, I don't know if you've noticed that underneath there, there's like a thing and they all plug like this. And I want you to imagine that actually the whole of the universe is one big one of them. You know, that you plug in. 
And there's one cable, and the one cable in the end, not two, goes into a plug like this. And that's what the universe is like. Everything, everything goes from one cable, and that one cable plugs into one thing, him. That's why the Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. Everything plugs into him. Everything does. And because everything plugs into him, and he's the source of all energy, and he's the source of all power, he cannot grow faint or weary. He has got an unending river of strength that is, we have an inability to tap and ready for us to draw on. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh looks down at him, And Moses looks up to him and Moses comes to this decision. Who's got the power here? And that's why he says, bring him on. Bring him on. Because Moses knows and he's come to the conclusion, no, he's got inexhaustible source of energy. Coming to the end. Five, God does not fit into his box. Sorry, is that right? God fits into it. Have I done it again? Yes, God fits into his box and not ours. The fifth implication. He alone is God. What do I mean by that? It's very important that we believe this truth. Because if we don't, we will be subject to our own feelings and our own desires. Basically, we want God to be what we want him to be. No. God must remain God and we must be subject to him. We may feel that we can't be... And we do this, don't we? We think, well, you know, I know what so-and-so is like, so when, they te- when I tell them about God, if I just forget that part of the God story and don't tell them this about the God story, then they will not only love me, but they will love God. And God says, no, I want you to tell them me. I want you to tell them exactly what I am like. I alone am God. I am unique. You don't have to be affected by your, if you like, your way of putting me into a box. You can't put me into a box. But what we feel or what we desire does not actually change him. That's the joke. Because when we change what we think about God, because God is absolute, because God is in the word and because he's there, eventually those people will find out exactly what God is like. So we might as well say to him, look, the God that we serve is just so unique. He is so different. And the world that he lives, the kingdom of God, is very different to being in the kingdom of this world. And some of his standards, yes, are very different to the standards of this world. Why? Because he is God. He is absolutely unique. And I wonder whether you're like me. Whether you sort of say, well, does the Bible really say that? Well, you know, I like these verses, but those verses... I had somebody in the church in Rugeley lady uh, said to me this, you know, I believe these words in the Bible, but I don't believe these. True, Kelly? That's how it is. 
And actually, inside here, there is something of that in us all to some level. This sits comfortably with me. This doesn't. But in the end, the idea of my idea of God is irrelevant. Because the idea of God that will change the world is his idea of himself. Not mine. Not mine. We don't have to make our God as good as everybody else's God. He is God. It's, we just need to sell this unique God. And our calling as children is to strive to know him for who he is and to tell people exactly as it is. So that's why that Moses could come and stand against Pharaoh with all his gods and say, I'm going to come and tell you about the one who says, I am who I am. Therefore, sixthly, we mustn't conform to God. We must conform to God, not he to us. Sorry, sixth implication. Do you know, I realise this, that, that I learnt my manners from my parents. And my parents had some strange things that, that I used to be able, that I could and couldn't do, particularly at the dinner table. So here's one rule in my family house. You can't eat your pudding till you've eaten your dinner. It's true. Rachel's laughing because she's heard that before. Well, it's not mine. It's not mine. Okay, that's just the way that it was. And so my, my, my parents taught me s- certain manners. Here's something that my father taught me when Callie turned up on my doorstep. Apparently, that men should always walk on the side of a curb. True? The men are nodding. Because apparently, horses and carts might come off the, the, and run into, so you protect your wife or your, or your girlfriend. So my father sat me down and he said to me, I want you to always walk. And I went, what? He said, you walk there. And I said, why? And he said, Orson Cart. And I'm, what? <laughs> but apparently that's true. And I was taught that. So what I do is that Callie knows which side she actually walks on. And actually now, we find it, I don't know whether you'd find, it's like when you're married and you swap the other side of the bed. I can't sleep. Why? Because you're on the other side of the bed. Don't be so ridiculous. What have you done that for? It's just a bed and you get to sleep, you know. What do you do when your wife or your husband is not there? Just go to sleep. So why when you swap to your delight? Because that's the way that we were. And now when we were, we're walking along the road and somebody happens, they walk into us and we swap like this. We, st- we do that funny thing where we start doing this to try and get on the right side and then we can carry on. It's just the way that it is. What am I on about? <laughs> the other thing that I've learned was this, that, that believe it or not, once this was a fine figure of a man. Just once. It was there once. I used to play football. I actually used to get paid to play football. In my day, I got paid £26 a week to play football. And and, paid for the petrol in the car and that sort of stuff. I realised this very early on, that what I thought about how the the team should, should run was irrelevant because the manager said, that's my job. And do you know what happened? That if I told him what I thought about what he was doing and the tactics, particularly if after we'd lost a game, I was disciplined and fined. And I learned very early on that the manager runs the team and not the players. That actually the parents set the manners and not the children. (laughs) And my father told me this. He said this, that a general gives the orders and not the soldiers. Then surely 
I know this is plain, that as God's creatures and God's children, we must conform to the will of him and not to us. Truth is, few of God's creatures actually follow this very simple logic. He knows best, I don't. We sort of go our own way, with our own little thoughts, and sort of bring him in when we need him to act on our behalf. We sort of make God in our own image. Well, he's not going to do that. Our responsibility is to conform to him and not to us. And finally, I'll put it in for you, Phil. Phil says, I've got to finish with Jesus. So, Phil, there were six, this is seven. I spent more time on this than any other thing. So, Phil Harmon, sit up, listen, and just grow it. Final implication of this magnificent name, I am who I am, is that the infinite, absolute, self-determined God has actually drawn near to us in Jesus. Brilliant. He's got it. Emmanuel, that was down the end here. But that's better than me, because John 8, 56 to 58, Jesus answering the criticism of the Jewish leaders, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Here it is, Phil. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What was he saying? I'm God. I am God. So when Jesus said, before Abraham, I was, he took this majestic truth of the name of God. He wrapped it in humility and humanity and servanthood. Offered himself, God himself offered himself to atone for your and for my sin and for my rebellion and made a way for us to see I am that I am without fear. He was God incarnate. And in Jesus, we have the mind-blowing privilege of knowing the Yahweh, our Father, more than Lord. We have the privilege of standing before I am who I am and worshipping God, but also worshipping Jesus as fully God. John 1.14 said this, I'll come back to David's quote in a minute. The word has become flesh and has made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. C.S. Lewis described this. He said, the grand miracle Uh, David and the angel Gabriel described it as Emmanuel. God is with us. Be our Hamby, 
who wrote a carol, of which I hate carols, said this, Who is he in yonder stall, at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story, tis the Lord, O King of glory, at his feet we humbly fall, crown him, crown him, Lord of all. So to know him as I am is to live as he exists. To live as if he is the unique one. The one who does not change. Has all power at at the end of his fingers. To not conform our thoughts to him but to allow his thoughts to conform us. To follow him and to through him find Jesus in whom we worship. Let's pray. Yahweh, (laughs) this is your name forever. And and I pray, Yahweh, that you will be remembered throughout generations. That we, as a small representation of your church, (laughs) that we might not forget your name and who you are. And that the world that we live in might come to know this great Yahweh through Jesus, who was fully God who was Emmanuel, (laughs) who was the word who became flesh. Jesus, we honour you. We honour you fully, God. The one who could say, I was with Abraham. (laughs) I was with Abraham. And the one who is with us now by your spirit. We glory only in you. And we give you all the power, all the majesty, all the honour. You are, I am, that I am. Amen. Amen.